Thank you, um, Dr. Tucker. I forgot that I said that, I'll be honest. I still believe it, but uh, I tend to follow Dr. Tucker, it seems, <laughs> in his very fine work as academic dean, and I can only hope that I can figure out a few things um, along those lines. So it's good to be here. Uh, it's been a while since I've preached and preached in this pulpit. It's a great honor. Having said that, I would say for me and my particular uh, passions, one of my greatest ministry joys and clearest callings has actually been, more specifically, the work of spiritual direction, which some of you know about. Uh, this is a relationship in which we watch for the presence and activity of God in one another's lives, and it is truly a privilege to wonder, to lament, to pray, and to celebrate with one another as we seek to know and love God and live out the consequences of a relationship with God in the world. The spiritual direction conversation is rooted in narrative. It's really storytelling. Like so much of scripture, the story we just read, and the historic journey of the church, Somehow, by God's loving design, our tiny stories become part of our Creator's great story of engagement with humanity. There's a certain vulnerability in the ministry of spiritual direction as we seek to, best we can, tell the truth about ourselves. And this creates spiritual community. We encourage storytelling here in small groups for faculty, staff, and students. <clears throat> and all of you who are students already know about sharing a spiritual autobiography, and most will be involved in group spiritual direction in semester three. So if you didn't appreciate those opportunities for honesty and vulnerability, you can blame me for that. I'd like to begin today by telling a heartbreaking yet hopeful story that has been told in spiritual direction about the powerful work of God and the healing that is possible through spiritual community. This is a story about Helen, who gives me permission to write about it and share it with others. Helen sensed a call to some kind of ministry in her teens, and so she began the journey by leaving home and spending a few years in a young adult mission program. She met someone in the program, they married, and they looked forward to years of ministry together. Helen loved to study and ultimately came to seminary to continue her preparation. It was during those years she noticed something was not right with her husband. She couldn't put her finger on it, at first. After some months, she finally discovered the cause that shook her to the core. Her husband was struggling with substance abuse. She describes being utterly stunned by what was evolving right in front of her. As people of deep faith, they responded with both fervent prayer and Alcoholics Anonymous. She talks with clarity about the experience she had of discovering that the illness was not her husband's choice. And with God's help, there was real hope for long-term sobriety. In the time that followed, he had many periods of stability and success, 
But there were also difficult days when fa Helen found herself hunting frantically for hidden bottles and driving him to the next AA meeting. They began all over again to count the days, one day, one week, 90 days, and so on, seeking long-term sobriety. Helen describes an especially low moment when she drove past a familiar liquor store and was tempted to walk in and smash every bottle in the place. Learning about codependence and the work of detaching with love became an important part of her journey. She says that she eventually quit praying, why God, and instead began to pray, what is mine to do? The serenity prayer became a constant companion. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. It went against every natural inclination to stop helping, to stop trying to fix the problem in an attempt to make things right. Over the decade that followed, she prayed and prayed and prayed some more. Helen remembers a time when she read from the biblical book of Revelation chapter 5 about bowls filled with prayers rising like incense before the God of the universe. She pictured such a bowl with her name on it, overflowing with thousands upon thousands of prayers. At one point, Hope arose with a new diagnosis and treatment plans, but ultimately his, Helen's husband passed through a final stage of serious mental illness and it became clear that she and her children were no longer safe. He chose to leave and to live with others from AA. Helen says she experienced a sorrowful peace in this and yet also a certainty that this had been the right decision. For a time, it was very hard to pray, nearly impossible. The Lord's Prayer, perhaps, but not much more. She remembers having many questions for God and plenty of anger at the injustices of mental illness, the loss of dreams. She said she was a little surprised also, but completely grateful to find spiritual community coming around and embracing her. It had always been hard to talk about this, what was appropriate to say, to whom. And she worried about what others would think about her as a spiritual leader. Shame is a real deal thing. When it takes root, it can be devastating to the very core of our identity no matter what the cause. Helen was able to battle the shame with the help of the spiritual communities that came around her. One of the most powerful things people in Helen's church did was for, to simply sit with her, allowing her spaces to tell her story and to pray. The judgment she feared was absence. The presence of Jesus Christ and the love of others was palpable. She was one anothered, as we read about in the letters of the New Testament, by God's people. She was tended to in the ways that matter most. 
making space for questions, for lament. And in time, she found that healing and hope as she returned to a rich and fruitful and deep life of prayer. And she continued on with joy and fruitfulness in her ministry. Helen is my middle name, and this is my story. After years of listening to the stories of others in seminary and in the church, I know that I am not alone. It is possible for congregations to become places, to become spiritual communities that foster the kinds of healing relationships that make space for loss and for lament. I began to realize along the way that the church is full of people wrestling with losses. So many are walking wounded. We may step into church on Sunday morning with giant smiles on our faces. And inside, the wounds are there. And we don't know within this body of Christ who we can tell the story to. The losses of relationships, of ministry positions, of loved ones, the loss of a dream, the loss of health, the loss of faith. So many gutting losses. No church is perfect, as we all know. But it is possible to learn some things about the way we might build spiritual community so that we can walk together in loss and lament. As a teacher, there are times when I would most appreciate a textbook for Jesus-style spiritual community. But it seems the Gospels are not designed with this in mind. This is not the shape of the witness of Scripture. Still, we can learn something from the ways that Jesus related to people and then adapt them to our own contexts. One of the first things he did following his initiation into ministry was to gather people around who would walk with him, travel with him, companions to him, and ultimately to each other. He called them friends in John's gospel and then commanded them to love each other. He became literally Emmanuel, God with us, not God with me by myself in my spiritual life or with you in your spiritual life, but God with us together, walking with one another, a hands-on creator of honesty, vulnerability, and healing spiritual community. On several occasions, we see Jesus making efforts to train his followers in the work and the process, I believe, of spiritual community. One wonderful example is this encounter with the disciples on the way to Emmaus. And we see here this commitment to presence and discernment. So a couple of thoughts about this story. 
After a terrible loss, we find these two followers of Jesus walking along together and reflecting on the painful events of the past days when a fellow traveler joins them. We read in the passage, their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus, and he makes a decision in that moment not to enlighten them. In the very next story of Luke, Jesus handles that encounter so differently. He immediately reveals his identity and says, it's I, myself. He reassures them, inviting them to touch him, to see his scars. It's hard for me as someone with a passion for spiritual and pastoral care, to understand why he wouldn't do that here. They are discouraged and dejected. Why not a quick revelation to ease their pain? How often do we want to do the same? To fix the problem, bring the comfort, help the resolution to occur. I have a hunch about this. Instead of identifying himself, Jesus lets the pair really feel their sorrow and their loss. Rather than offering immediate revelation, Jesus asks a question. What are they discussing? He lets them talk to tell the whole story from their perspective. He creates space for them to express their confusion and consider their experience. Keep in mind, Jesus has just capped off the one-of-a-kind life of ministry with the specific, most miraculous act. But he holds back his own news to meet them where they're at. He wants to know their thoughts before explaining his, or at least he makes space for that. He walks with them literally, figuratively, giving them his time and attention before he says a word about what he knows to be true. He was a master listener that reached beyond the protective facade to the true fears and questions of these followers, giving them time to process their grief and loss. This kind of listening is essential. It is a core of our work as ministers. A second thing to notice, Jesus challenges these hope-drained disciples in a way that seems rather unexpected and ill-suited to the character of a patient and compassionate friend. He literally calls them foolish and slow of heart. You know, this one just doesn't fit in my neat package of pastoral care instruction, unfortunately. I want him to say something really different here, like, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. This is so tough. I mean, that's what I want. That's what I want him to say. There may be a time when we are tempted to call someone foolish. I may have thought it a few times. (laughs) Not here, not here. Foolish and a bit slow to figure things out. I don't know about you, but I generally do keep that to myself. And I do think probably that's important. Perhaps it's a moment when the resurrected Jesus, who has complete knowledge of the mysteries of God, may take a little more license and know the right next step. 
But what, one thing we do notice about this response is that Jesus does something here critical for effective spiritual care in community. He takes the time with just the two of them, inviting them to reflect on the scripture together. How beautiful is that? Considering God's greater purposes. Through his one anothering, they get outside of themselves. In a sense, they're encouraged to open their minds to a God's eye view of things. I would like to think this is one of our big purposes as a seminary, to open up to the God's eye view, best we can discern. Jesus listens to the traveling disciples' interpretation, helps them discern how God is alive and at work in the challenges they face. He holds them then accountable for the truth that they know. Spiritual care does involve accountability. And he invites them to live into the truth. The tools for spiritual discernment include the careful use of scripture, exploration of the story of God's dealings with God's people, and then encouragement to apply the witness to specific contexts, to live faithfully according to it. A third interesting thing we might note actually happens after Jesus disappears. The disciples do two things that most of us have done ourselves when trying to understand an important life experience. What do they do? They turn to one another. You gotta wonder at the look on their faces. Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us? I think it's helpful to note here, they don't just think about this, they feel. They notice their feelings. They pay attention to the inner response, the gut. And it matters, it matters that they do that. We are designed for discernment that involves both rational thought reflection on life experience, then also on feelings. God does actually communicate often through feelings. Inner response. And this kind of inner burning is often associated with the Holy Spirit in scripture. They pay attention to it. And then as they process it, they sense a call to respond. What they must do with the gift they have received is to share it with those who will want to receive it. They hurry back to the gathered community to offer a testimony, a word of encouragement, a message of hope. What a gift that there were two disciples on the road. They were able to look at each other and say, did you see what I saw? Did you hear what I hear? Are you feeling what I'm feeling? They were there for each other to figure it out together and confirm that maybe this is for real. This really happened. How often do we need that in each other? The ally, the spiritual friend to look at and say, did you? I, I did. And this is the work of encouragement, the mutual encouragement where we turn to one another, we confirm, we lift up, we support, and we stay the course. 
because we are not designed to stay the course alone. So we go on from this story into the book of Acts and note the larger group of disciples who continue to walk with each other in discernment of God's presence and guidance going forward. They literally live out the consequences of the truth of Christ that they have witnessed. Another essential aspect of this kind of spiritual community is paying attention to those nudges of the spirit, the constant comforter, advocate, and then respond in action for the sake of God's purposes in the world. One of the questions we are left with in this story, in my view, is this. Why at this point in Jesus' life and accomplished ministry, does he even bother to meet up with these two followers and walk with them? When there are so many other things he could be doing, why is this a priority and why was it recorded? We could speculate but it seems clear that Jesus loves these two. He loves them. He just simply loves them. God loves us the same way, wanting to walk with us, inviting us to walk with each other. In a time of deep discord and distrust, I wonder if we don't all have this calling to ask, how am I designed, how am I called to walk with others? What is mine to do right now? What is mine? So, one of the things I've done in my role as academic dean, because as Dennis Tucker has so kindly said to me, part of the job is putting out fires. We don't have a lot of fires, thankfully. I really, I really thank God for the love in this place. It is very, very special. This seminary is a very special place. I've been in other places, and this one, has something about it. There is spiritual community here. It starts with the covenant groups. It moves on through conversations in hallways and classrooms. And it's really throughout. It is such a gift to be here. But it's also work. It's a calling to be mutually encouraging people. It's a calling to look for each other's gifts and lift them up. It's a calling and a responsibility that we must take seriously in local churches and in seminaries. And so I keep this on my desk and I look at it every day because it is a reminder of the scripture's call to be this kind of person for the sake of others, especially in a time and a place, a country and a context where discord is the way for whatever reason. So hear the words of the scripture for us. Love and accept one another. Pray for one another. Tell the truth to each other. Be kind to one another. Bring joy to each other. Serve one another. 
Be patient with each other. Comfort one another. Forgive one another. Be generous with each other. Honor each other. Honor each other. I pray this for each and every one of you and for the places in which you will serve. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, it is such a privilege to be called by you to love, to provide pastoral care, to be spiritual companions, to commit ourselves every single day when we walk into a building, a room, a place, that you have given us a mandate for love, for compassion, for kindness, for gentleness, for every dimension that is the fruit of your spirit in our lives. I pray that you will raise up people from within this seminary who will be so counter-cultural that they will love. They will simply love and they will be kind and they will be generous. Guide us today, O oh Lord, to fulfill our purpose and calling in this and bring to mind, even now, if there is someone specific to whom we are called to be encouragement and support, raise that person up within our mind and heart and guide us in how we might walk with them, especially if they are in a season of loss and lament. And we pray all of these things now in the name of Jesus. Amen.